0: If you want to get a sense of how massive the federal investigation into January 6th is, here's something to keep in mind. The FBI, they are still arresting rioters, more than two years later. These are people they've known about for months. People like Daniel and Peyton Valdez, who just got charged in the last few days. Daniel's Peyton's dad. They traveled to DC from Colorado. Daniel took pictures of his son inside the Capitol. In one snapshot, Peyton is holding up a riot shield that's been dropped on the floor. He's cracked open a beer. There's even this one video of Peyton online telling the camera, the next time we come back, it ain't gonna be effing unarmed. That's for goddamn sure. Afterwards, he texted a few friends. And it looks like they said, like, oh, looks like we're gonna be arrested.
1: Yes, yes. There's a lot of comments like that. Yep, and then you eventually will. But, like, that's the weird thing where I think a lot of people probably, it must be really unsettling if you went into the Capitol uh, and you don't know when this knock on your door is going to come.
0: If it surprises you that the FBI is still hauling people like this in front of judges, years later, Ryan Riley, who's a justice reporter over at NBC News, he says it really shouldn't. How often are they tracking people down still now?
1: Still very regularly. They're only really a third through the number of people who totally could be arrested. So, yeah, I mean, it's they're definitely still coming in. But based on the current trajectory, they're never going to get to everybody who they could arrest, Uh, even though. Never, never. No. Even though, like, they know their identities and everything. They have more than a thousand identities of people who haven't been arrested yet.
0: Even more fascinating to Ryan is how a whole lot of these suspects got identified in the first place. Of the people who are identifiable who were at the Capitol on January 6th, how many of them have been identified by online sleuths? Hundreds. These online sleuths, they call themselves sedition hunters. And Ryan says they've been the driving force behind the federal investigation into the Capitol riot. So today on the show, we'll go inside their world. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. Where were you on January 6th? Like, how were
1: you watching what played out? I was at home, uh, like a lot of people. I think I would have probably been there had it not been for the pandemic. But it was something I was reporting on the Proud Boys uh, in the lead up to because Enrique Tarrio had been arrested uh, the prior day. And we were all sort of aware that a bunch of people who believed a crazy conspiracy theory were coming to D.C.
0: I remember that day just sitting there watching TV, kind of bowled over by everything I was able to witness myself, even though I wasn't there. I'm kind of curious if you had the same moment. Like, I was just like, this is crazy. I'm watching people scale the Capitol.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and I did. And there was also a huge divide, I think, between what we were seeing online and what we were seeing on our television screens. What do you mean by that? I mean, in terms of the cable news coverage, what you had was often these sort of distant images, right? Because there was not a lot of coverage of the west side of the Capitol, which is where most of the violence took place. Most of the cameras were on the east side of the Capitol, And so we saw these images come through and even looking back at the coverage of it that day. And it's often like, oh, there are some people on the stairs. This is kind of crazy. But we really didn't have that view of just this violent mob that was assaulting law enforcement officers on the west side of the Capitol. Stack up what was on television with with what was happening on the internet. And I think that divide... um, sort of became clear because even, you know, the, the FBI wasn't even aware of what was happening. Uh, you weren't in the middle of the action in a way that a lot of these uh, videos that we saw online and live streams were.
0: As these raw images came out, what struck you? And I wonder, like, when did you begin to think, huh, these images could be used
1: to identify these people? Early on, I think there were a lot of people who went very viral, sort of the low-hanging fruit of this investigation, who were arrested very quickly, sort of the... People who looked silly or were very violent. Correct. Exactly. We saw that with QAnon Shaman, obviously, uh, was arrested within days. Uh, Big O, uh, the guy who put his feet on Nancy Pelosi's desk, also same sort of situation, arrested very quickly. And because it had so much media attention, um, these were you know people who knew them were identifying them and sending them into the FBI, or they were just openly bragging about it under their own names online. And it wasn't that difficult uh, to find them. Um, And I think what happened very quickly is some of the open source researchers who have been through this in previous uh, iterations, recognized the importance of scouring and collecting that information pretty quickly.
0: How did you first see people online begin to gather images and then sort of methodically figure out who someone was?
1: So the way I sort of came into this was because there was this video of this woman um, known as Bullhorn Lady. She was actually just sentenced last week, spoiler alert, to uh, more than four years uh, in federal prison. Uh, But this was this woman named Rachel Powell. And I sort of made a joke tweet because it reminded me of the voice that she was using as she was on this bullhorn and instructing members of the mob how they could take the building. She said,
0: there's also two doors. In the other room. One in the rear and one to the right when you go in. So people should probably coordinate together if you're gonna
1: take this building. That sort of reminded me almost as like that, you know, frustrated tone that you have with your kids. <laughs> uh, and almost like she was chaperoning uh, the insurrection. Like she was a PTA mom. I actually made that exact joke. I said, um, I said, you know, 20 bucks says uh, that this uh, results not only in criminal charges, but also in a PTA resignation. Um, (laughs) And shortly thereafter, uh, someone landed in my inbox and said, hey, Ryan, we've identified this person. We're trying to figure out what to do with it. Ultimately, I got a little bit scooped there uh, because uh, the New Yorker and Ronan Farrow ended up uh, writing that story. But You know, I sort of put my journalistic jealousy aside and stuck with it uh, and got the next one uh, that they had identified and were having trouble getting any action on. And that was a much more serious crime. It was the individual who drove a stun gun into Officer Mike Fanone's neck um, on January 6th. Um, And this was someone who was at a bunch of Trump rallies uh, in California. And so ultimately, it was a month after we broke the story revealing his name, uh, that he uh, had his back door uh, busted down by uh, the FBI. And he's been in federal custody ever since and was uh, recently sentenced uh, to 12 and a half years uh, in federal prison.
0: Those first tips Ryan got came from a guy named Forrest Rogers, who's still one of the only sleuths who's gone public with his real name. But Ryan soon realized that Forrest was part of a growing network of investigators. This group took pains to conceal their identities. So they wouldn't meet up in Zoom calls, for instance. That could make their IP addresses and other information way too public. Instead, they kept in touch on encrypted apps, getting to know each other exclusively from anonymized usernames and cartoon
1: avatars. As this went on, what's been interesting about it is... There are still a lot of these slews who I do not know their real identity, but what I do know is I know their track records. Really, even after like years of reporting on them, there are some people who I've met in person who I have I do not know their real names. One of them has met my wife, who I don't actually know their uh, their real name, but what I do know is their investigative track record. What a strange deep throat situation. It is very strange. But what's interesting for me and I think for the Bureau is that they can vet all of this on their own. You don't necessarily have to just completely put yourself in someone else's hands because... They come with receipts. They come with receipts, precisely. Yeah. So over the years, I've gotten to know these people and they're one people that I really, really trust. Did they know each other before January 6th and
0: like January 6th just sort of kicked people into gear or did January 6th bring people together?
1: Oh, no, not at all. That brought everyone together. Yeah, these are people from all across the country who never knew each other, but now, you know, some of them are best friends, (laughs) right? And like send each other Christmas cards. It's one
0: thing to form an online community, but actually performing this investigative digital forensic work, making positive identifications from hours and hours of footage, these sleuths needed tools. So one guy actually created an app that combed through hours of archived footage to find fleeting, unguarded moments when suspects were especially identifiable. It leveraged a technology that has snuck into the background of everyday life.
1: Facial recognition, so you can get part of it and that connects them with another person in this sort of database that they have altogether of all these videos. So you might have only a partial face shot, but that'll connect them with that other part of their face. So if you have someone with sunglasses, it will connect them to someone without sunglasses uh, who is the same person, right? So you can get them at various points. I think a good example, I could talk about the Logan Barnhart case. Essentially what happened is you had an individual who dragged a cop down the stairs, but he had sunglasses on, his face was often uh, covered. Uh, and then he also, you know, threw a poll later. He in, was involved in some of the real violence of January 6th. Uh, but he was always covered up, and you couldn't quite get a good face shot. Then when they ran that facial recognition check, it pulls up all of these ro- uh, romance uh, novel covers. Uh, it turns huh. out this guy was a bodybuilder. And so that from there, they then went on his Instagram profile found him wearing the same sweatshirt. He was, you know, recorded a video of himself in the gym, punching a punching bag. And also he had posted about January 6th saying, you guys don't know what really happened. And I think he was sort of mocking the FBI. They identified him that way, sent that into the FBI. And then when I ended up ter- talking to the FBI, they uh, were, had an arrest uh, sort of going in place. It just makes you realize how public we all are now, even if we don't think we are. Yes, but they don't just send in these things after getting a facial recognition match. Even though facial recognition is improving and getting better, um, they really do find some other confirming material that they can use to make sure that the people that they are saying is a the person they've they, is actually the person.
0: You know, online sleuthing has this mixed history. Like back with the Boston Marathon bombing, crowdsourced investigations eventually led to a man being wrongly accused. What do you think made this investigation different?
1: I think they learned a lot of the lessons of the Boston Marathon bombing. And very quickly, when you had people throwing out IDs, they would very quickly get replies. They would get direct messages um, about not doing that. And the rules were pretty well established and spread from the early days. We do not name people online. So why there may sort of be these independent people, freelance, they were pretty quickly rejected, I think, from the overall sedition hunters community if they went about naming people. Were there any IDs that went wrong? Like, how did the sleuths handle that? Very early on, I think, when people who weren't actually involved with the effort or were sort of pushed out of the effort uh, might have wrongly identified people. I remember I've got a few tips, random tips that uh, were not correct. There was someone who was featured on the FBI's list that someone thought was this mayor from California or something, and they vaguely looked the same. I can see why someone thought that, but all I had to do was go back and say, Oh, no, there was like a council meeting or something that day that he was there for. So I was able to vet that pretty easily. But it sounds like you kind of became a sleuth, too. <laughs> In the early days, I mean, there was a lot of interest in who these people were. And it was clear the FBI was overwhelmed. And I think that that's really when the sleuths ended up turning more to uh, reporters and to the media because they were not getting anywhere. And the feedback loop was really concerning because the FBI has these pretty stringent, strict rules about talking about ongoing investigations. And that has been a source of frustration for the sleuths uh, because they can't find out updates in these cases. They'll be like, I sent this to you two years ago. What the hell has been happening? Where's this, Where does this stand? Where is this at?
0: After the break, this frustration with the FBI, it turns out it was indicative of a much deeper, more bureaucratic problem.
1: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. One
0: thing that stands out from your reporting is just how much faster this big group of random untrained people were able to investigate what happened on January 6th compared to the federal government. I wonder if we can just talk about that a bit. Like one of the things you, you make a point of in your book is to say that like the FBI was founded at the turn of the century 1908. Same year, the Model Model T came out, so more people have cars, more people can do all sorts of interstate crimes because they can get there. So there's a need for a federal Bureau of Investigation. It seems like we're at a similar technological turning point now with the internet, but it doesn't seem like the FBI
1: is turning. They're not. And I mean, it's tough to turn a huge ship like the FBI. It has its ways uh, that they've been doing for decades, generations, and it's very difficult to get them to pivot. And I think if you just think about the people who join the FBI and the people that you really need to work at the FBI in terms of the technological resources, it, this becomes sort of crystal clear because if you're really technologically skilled, and you spent, you know, a good amount of money on a degree, and then you're looking at your options. And, okay, it's on the one hand, I could give up pot for a year before I apply, um, and I could basically set a limit on where I could ever get financially in terms of salary. The FBI doesn't have really cool campuses in cities where people want to live. Uh, If you're a special agent, they could dispatch you anywhere in the country and they don't really care what your spouse's career is. Uh, So it's not particularly appealing uh, to young people who are technologically skilled to join an organization uh, like the FBI and then deal with all of these sort of bureaucratic hurdles that you see them really dealing with.
0: One thing I don't get from your reporting, like you talk about how the people working together, they created an app. They found ways to, like, you know, plug video into things. I mean, why can't the FBI just download the app? Like, what?
1: <laughs> I don't understand why they're so stuck. I think there are, some, there are some concerns there, especially with the FBI just grabbing things online or anything in public. There are some First Amendment concerns. The FBI shouldn't just be, like, grabbing anything on a protest. And that's how some of these ideas come about. Often there's some sort of separate event. Uh, a lot of the Stop the Steal rallies uh, was, were, were huge for the sleuths because you'll have an instance where someone shows up to the Capitol and then you get a facial recognition match with a photo of them in, say, Harrisburg. I say Harrisburg because that's where a lot of uh, individuals uh, were gathered who ended up storming the Capitol uh, at one of these um, Stop the Steal protests. In fact, one of them was standing behind Jim Jordan and then went on to, uh, in, while in military gear, uh, tell other riders to steal cops, guns, uh, and pepper spray a line of officers. So you're saying the problem is that it looks like political persecution. Right. And I think they're super sensitive to that, especially when you uh, have all these members of Congress who are more really turning up the heat, I think, on the FBI.
0: I mean, that's a real problem, given that there is one political party in this country that is encouraging political violence.
1: It is. It is. It's really, it's concerning. And I think that they're all sort of watching where this goes. But, you know, you can only placate... (sighs) so much. And I think that that's the real situation. The crystallizing moment for me was when there was this FBI individual at the Washington field office who was being interviewed about what was happening in the lead up to January 6th. And she sort of begrudgingly said that, yes, you know, rhetoric was getting more heated as it got closer to January 6th. And then there's a pause and they sort of sort of ask the next question. And she says, on both sides. And that was just like a gobsmacking moment for me. Because it's like, what are you talking about? There were not Joe Biden supporters plotting to storm the Capitol to overthrow the election that he won? Like, it just doesn't, it fundamentally doesn't compute. But they felt that pressure. It was almost like this instinctual thing that was built into them because we don't want to look politically biased. And like, you just have to talk real and be like, the right-wing threat has been so clear for so long. And I think that that's what the fundamental disconnect is here.
0: When did it become clear to the FBI that with the January 6th case, they would need to accept outside help from these internet sleuths?
1: I mean, it's sort of, I think, morphed in the first year because... Early on, it was mostly people who knew people, that the, the tips that they were coming in o- online, and there was an overwhelming number of tips they had to deal with. I do not envy them for having to sort through 200,000-plus tips that they received about January 6th. That's overwhelming. I mean, there are just cases probably sitting there today that they have never gotten around to, and it'll probably only be when the slews sort of give them a little bit of a kick in the pants on something or say, hey, we found this person doing something, that they'll go back and follow up on some of those tips or use those tips um, in some way. But it took a while for this this trust to sort of build up, I think, between the SLU's, um and the FBI. And I think that the SLUs have learned a lot about the FBI and sort of been shocked by how far behind uh, they are and and just to what was happening online or making sure that it's brought to their attention. Because you just don't have people who are going out and like, oh, yeah, let me search this hashtag, see what's out there on the Internet there. It's more of like a closed off system um, that they're sort of dealing with. And that's not that great when you consider they're, they're only dealing with this very limited knowledge. You know, if I were building a case, one of these cases, it would be very tough for me to find all of this evidence and sort of compile it together in the way that the, the slews had if I was just going off of a tip and I can only do this on my own. And I think the collaboration has really been one of the slews. Uh, secret weapons here, is just being able to talk very freely, openly, and in these sort of chat forums very quickly. With each other. With each other. That that hive mind and that crowdsourcing is so beneficial. That's when I have some of my best story ideas, is when you're just talking with someone, and then someone adds, and then, and then, and you add, and then you're like, oh, this is a story. And that's what they really thrive on, I think, uh, is this community that they formed and with the FBI, it's just a whole different structure. They have these sort of, they have these field offices and these fiefdoms, really, uh, where there are all these different interests, but you can't really have an open and honest conversation or a free conversation with them uh, because all this is being documented forever. So unless you dial them up on the phone, and that's not really how this collaboration works. And just even just, I think about doing this via email, and it seems just like, uh it seems like such a chore. It really seems mind-sucking. Whereas if you're dealing with one of these chat platforms and sort of a more... Constant communication uh, is just a really big element of this, and I think that that's what the sleuths have gotten to know over these years.
0: Two and a half years in, it's hard for the sedition hunters themselves to measure their success. Sleuths do not know exactly how many arrests have helped facilitate. They just know they've been in touch with the FBI about hundreds of cases. There are two more years for the feds to continue to arrest rioters. So these online investigators, they're still on the case. Do you think the slews will ever come forward and claim public credit with their full names? Do you think in twenty years, one of these folks will be sitting around with their grandkids, like, Sonny, I did that," <laughs> you
1: know? It depends, really, frankly, where things go. I mean, if we're in a if we're in a second Trump administration, uh, I think there's going to be a lot of very worried slews. Obviously, these cases are probably just all going to go away instantly. But you know, if we get through twenty twenty four and there's relative calm and maybe we get past the statute of limitations and these cases have sort of all gone away, I could see some of them maybe be willing to be more public facing. But I think this is more of a thing that they'll be able to point to and tell people about, but I don't know if they're going to be uh, wanting to be that publicly out there. It really depends on the threat environment, because obviously there's a huge interest in identifying uh, a lot of the people who are working behind the scenes here, and they've been a major target um, for people on the right. So I think that there's you know a lot of concerns just like safety wise and what that means for um, the rest of your life to have that uh, associated with you on the internet.
0: Ryan, I am super grateful for your time and your reporting. Thanks for coming on the show.
1: Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: Ryan Riley is a justice reporter at NBC News, and he's the author of Sedition Hunters, How January 6th Broke the Justice System. And that's the show. If you're a fan of what we're doing here at What Next, the best way to support our work is to join Slate Plus. Go on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Rob Gunther, Anna Phillips, Paige Osborne, and Madeline Ducharme. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little help from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. Thanks for listening. I will catch you back here next time.
1: This is the story of the One. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently